0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Good evening, listeners. We're going to talk about replacing Hazelwood tonight with Ellen Sandal and David Spratt. But first, I'd like to dedicate this show in ANZAC week to the conscientious objectors. One of my relatives refused to go to World War I on moral grounds, and I don't know how he realised what a futile struggle it was going to be up in his remote country town of Wandiligong, but he resisted the pressure and the momentum to war. So now, a 100 years later, I think our job is to resist the momentum to keep fueling climate change. It's just as heroic, even more heroic, really. But we are lucky. We have scientists like James Hansen and Malti Meinhausen, who tell us the path we're on. It's incompatible with life. They give us scientific proof. And David Spratt is with us in the studio to explain why two degrees, you know, this cap that the world community seems to have agreed on, that we can warm up to two degrees. We haven't even got up to one degree yet of warming and we're already experiencing extreme events, but the world community has fixed on this two degrees. David's going to tell us why that's a dangerous goal for the Paris talks and why we have no carbon, carbon budget left at all. David is an expert on climate change and I, will call, I would call him a community catalyst. Uh, so I'm very glad he's with us in the studio. Meanwhile, the climate movement has been ramping up against coal. We have Ellen Sandal from the Greens to tell us about the campaign to replace Hazelwood Power Station and coal mine. Ellen represents Melbourne in the Victorian Parliament. Welcome, Ellen. Hi, Viv. Thanks for having me. I'm very glad to hear, to hear your voice there. Tell us about your bill in Parliament the other day concerning Hazelwood.
0: Well, we've started a campaign with the Greens and also with concerned members of the community to call on the Labor government to close down our dirtiest power station. So many of your listeners would know that Hazelwood is the dirtiest brown coal power station in the country. It's actually the third dirtiest power station in the world, which is pretty extraordinary. It's well past its use by date. It had its licence extended, even though it really shouldn't have. And it's creating terrible health impacts as well for the people of the Valley. Back in 2010, the Labor government actually promised to phase out Hazelwood. Now they're back in power. We need to actually remind them of that promise. They seem to have conveniently forgotten about it. And so that's why I started this campaign. And last week in Parliament, I made a speech about it and was joined by 200 people on the steps of the Parliament calling on Labor to shut down Hazelwood, which was phenomenal for the start of a campaign.
1: Yes. We were unable to get two of the Labor people I approached for this program, but I think they are willing to speak to us and we'll get them later on to give the Labor Party point of view. And I think, you know, it's great if we keep the pressure on them, they may live up to it. If the new Labor government lives up to that John Brumby promise to close down the power station, what responsibility does GDF Sewers the uh, French multinational owner have to rehabilitate the mine because I believe it still can catch fire on the coal face. That's right, and we saw the devastating impacts
0: of that last summer in 2014 when the coal mine actually caught on fire and the town of Morwell had to be evacuated and we had a spike in deaths of people in Morwell and Taralgon and those towns, which was just terrible, terrible impacts for the community, let alone the impacts of climate change that Hazelwood is creating. Um it will cost money to rehabilitate that mine to make it safe for that community. At the moment the estimated costs are about two hundred million dollars. GDF Sewers had to give the government a bond for the rehabilitation, but that was only fifteen million. So it's going to cost two hundred. They've only paid fifteen. It is their responsibility to rehabilitate the mine. That's what they've signed up for when they bought it. They knew they would have to do that when they left. And so we would like the Labor government to actually increase that bond to reflect the true cost of rehabilitating it. And also one of the good things about rehabilitation is that it could create a lot of jobs in the area. So we know there are about 500 jobs in Hazelwood at the moment. Um, Environment Victoria released a report that showed that roughly an equivalent amount of jobs for the next 10 years could actually be created through mine rehabilitation. And that's what we'd like to see.
1: Okay. well, the writer um, Tom Doig was at your rally on the Parliament steps and I bought his book from him. He signed it. It's called The Coalface. That's a terrific read, listeners. It only costs $10. It's like a little... um, He's a journalist and it's a verbatim report of all his interviews and the full picture of the Royal Commission into that terrible pollution event that happened after the fire in the mine Um, I think Tom Doig shows a lot of respect to the Latrobe Valley people that he spoke to but at the rally he said this the bogans of the valley hate greenies and I think he's speaking for a lot of people who fear that a campaign to shut down the biggest employer in town will leave them dangling now you've mentioned coal mine rehabilitation but what's your vision to replace Hazelwood rather than just shut it down?
0: Well, he's right. We absolutely need to support the people and the workers of the La Trobe Valley. And they've had a really rough deal over the last few decades. When um, the government privatised the electricity sector, they lost so many jobs. And GDF Sewers has come in. Um, They've only recently bought the mine. They don't really respect the workers is what I'm hearing. The safety standards are quite low. They're running the plant into the ground. They don't want to spend any money on maintenance or safety because they know that coal is becoming more and more unprofitable. So governments do have a responsibility to look after the people of the Latrobe Valley to provide alternative sources of employment. So one of the things I'm actually calling for in the upcoming May budget in two and a half weeks is that the government puts money aside for a transition plan for the Latrobe Valley. There are people down there who are talking about the new jobs. They know that the plant is going to close and they want alternatives for themselves but also for their kids. And so the government, in my mind, has a responsibility to put money for a transition plan to actually ask people what kind of industries they want down there. And there are actually some incredible opportunities in renewable energy, in mine rehabilitation, in decommissioning the plant, which requires a lot of high-skilled jobs for a decade or more, but also in things like the health sector and manufacturing. And we are seeing um, a workers' cooperative set up recently called EarthWorker, which is using workers to, um, to have a cooperative for manufacturing solar hot water. And some of these opportunities just need a little bit of government help to set themselves up. And then we could actually have sustainable industries in the valley rather than this terribly polluting coal mine that's not good for anybody.
1: Well, that's great news. And I'm going to mention for the listeners more details about Earthworker. They sent me a message today. So hang in to the end of this interview, listeners, because uh, if you want to know about Earthworker solar, heat pump, hot water services. Um, I'll tell you all about it at the end. But now I'd like to move over to David Spratt, who's with me in the, audi- in the um, studio, not the audience. Um, David, this tension dramatised at Hazelwood is repeated around the world. You know, fossil fuels give jobs, profits, export income, as well as energy. How, do you know, um, how are other communities dealing with this? Is, it, is an orderly transition possible?
2: Well, this has always been a difficult issue for societies um, with economic and structural change. I mean, we think of the stories of horses and carts being replaced by cars. We think of, uh, in Australia, the... um when all the tariffs were cut and all the jobs that were protected here. We, you know, we used to make shoes and clothes in this country and there were huge transitions in the cars. The same thing's happening now with the car industry. I mean, I don't think dropping all these tariffs is necessarily a great idea. And I think we face two choices. One, you leave it to the market and it just happens. I mean, we know that there is excess capacity in the electricity sector. Uh, the energy regulator has said that there is 8 gigawatts of excess capacity. That's partly because power is more expensive and people are being more efficient with power. Uh, you've got renewables coming on. 8 gigawatts of excess capacity is five hazelwood stations. It's, it's more than all the capacity in, in, in the valley. And that's why the um, energy companies are actually appealing to government to to rationalise the sector because they're not making dough because of too much competition, which is an irony for people who believe in the free market. So either you leave to the market, what happened in South Australia and Port Augusta, where, where the operators just say, sorry, we don't think we're going to generate any more power. We're just going to mothball these things. And when they mothball it, there's no transitions. They just close it down, as, as Ellen said. They will run the facilities down. They won't repair them. They just—it's you, 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 like a—you know—it's like a, the electricity sector is a bit like a, the the coal sector is a bit like a a dry old lemon you're still trying to squeeze dough out of. <laughs> um, either you do that, or as a society and and as a as a government, you say yes, we need this transition. Let's plan it. Let's regulate it. And let's, as part of that process, create some jobs. Um, as I have tried to do, for example, in the in the forestry sector in, in Tasmania, where there, there were jobs deals as part of the of the arrangements to uh, to to um, uh, save those forests, so we know that there's that possibility. Either you leave it to the market and there will be catastrophe, or you try, as part of the closure process, get a jobs package in the, in the deal.
1: Yeah. Well, Ellen, maybe you could come in here. Do you remember, uh, were you there when Bob Massey came um, over for a visit? I, I heard him speak in Sydney and he said, well, for the Hunter Valley and uh, uh, the Bowen Valley, uh, places like that, you could just give early retirement packages to the mine workers because, as you said, there's only 500. it, it financially he was a financial expert and he just saw the economics in giving them a retirement package and setting up 20 years of work in mine reclamation as you said and all these other diversifications do you see that as the model that we could be really pushing in parliament well perhaps we know that
0: um as you said that these mines aren't going to be profitable into the future so we can't just keep living with this furphy that coal will continue into the future, which some of the Nationals members down there keep perpetuating this lie to the community that don't worry, coal will be here forever. It's just not true because we're seeing coal prices, um, or coal's just becoming so unprofitable that these plants are being run into the ground, they're not being invested in. And we saw AGL recently come out and say, in 35 years, they will shut down all of their coal plants. So coal doesn't have a long future. We could have retirement packages for some of the older workers but those workers also do care about what kind of jobs their kids are going to have and we don't just want all the young people from the Latrobe Valley to move out. So we do actually need new industries as well as jobs in rehabilitation and Mm. decommissioning. But there is an incredible opportunity there because, for example, the Latrobe Valley, it's already connected to the electricity grid. So why couldn't we build renewables down there why couldn't we invest in our renewables to be in that place where there's already a connection to the grid so they already have an advantage as well as jobs in manufacturing like the manufacturing of solar um hot water systems these are things that could exist there but it just requires a little bit of vision from the government to not leave it to the market as david spratt said because that's just going to be a disaster for the community and everybody in the La Valleys knows what happened when the electricity sector was privatised and that was just left to the market. It was devastating. Mm. So that's why we're asking for some government intervention.
1: Mm. Well, David, where do you think the climate movement should be putting its energies? I know you've been critical before about the climate movement sort of being dithering around, and I am critical that we're not all connected, and it's not a mass movement yet. Some of them are doing divestment strategies you know to stigmatize the fossil fuel corporations who have been undermining the science and you know paying a lot of money to get people into politics in america for example or do you think the climate movement should be more mobilizing the community around this vision of the way forward you know the well, look, solutions
2: if you look at it we need a really in one sense, we need a really rapid transition from dirty fossil fuels to renewable energy. You, this program has talked about this for, yeah. for, for I, hundreds, yes. hundreds of programs. There's, there's three elements of that, and it's really simple. One is to build renewables, A, because they have to be built, and B, as you build them, you put the squeeze on the fossil fuel sector. So we've seen that building renewables is not only a good thing, but it forces a rationalisation of fossil fuels, so you have to build renewables. Secondly, you have to start closing down the fossil fuel industry. A lot of time has been spent in Australia stopping new fossil fuels, which is yeah. great, uh, lock the gate and, and new exports, but we, we are already per capita the highest emitter of fossil fuels in the world, and mm. we now have to start closing things down, Obama's program in America looks like shutting 7% of their coal capacity this year. We need the same thing. We actually, for practical reasons and I guess for symbolic reasons, need for for people and for government to understand we are in the process of shutting down and the the thing that really brings those two things together is energy efficiency because energy efficiency reduces the amount of energy we need in society. We've seen that already happening and when you do that, that multiplies the effect because it reduces the demand even further and allows you. So I think there's renewables, I think there's energy efficiency and there's saying no more fossil fuels and let's start closing this down because we know uh, with the the impasse in Canberra about the renewable energy target the RET that this fossil fuel capacity is actually part of the reason why nobody will invest in wind at the moment. Mm. So we need to take fossil fuel capacity out in order to create the space for renewables. So it's pretty simple. It's ABC. It's more renewables, (laughs) close down coal, and really go for energy efficiency because we know that is the cheapest, the most Mm. cost-effective way to uh, reduce emissions.
1: Thanks, David. Well, Ellen, look, politicians say they feel the urgency. Some of them say they're across the science, they know all about it, but their targets for renewable energy, as David just mentioned, and targets for decreasing emissions are nowhere near what is needed. I'm speaking a bit more broadly than Australia, too. Now, what sort of pressure, you're now a politician, <laughs> what sort of pressure will they respond to? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a good question and you're right, particularly the new Labor government that we're seeing here in Victoria, they make lots of speeches in Parliament that I hear and talk in the media about the fact that they get the science of climate Mm. change, they know that it's an important issue, but their action just doesn't quite match up with their rhetoric because they're saying that climate change is urgent and important, yet they're still letting the fossil fuel industry get off scot-free, they're not shutting them down, they're still giving them incentives. And so we need to really expose that disconnect between what they're saying and what they're doing. And that's why we're running the Hazelwood campaign to say any government that's actually furious about climate change can't let coal, particularly brown coal, which is the worst in the country and one of the worst in the world, continue here in Victoria. But in terms of the pressure, we're seeing here in the inner city that so many seats are vulnerable to the Greens. So I won my seat off a Labor member. We also won Paran off a Liberal member. And so both the old parties are getting quite nervous that if they're not going to act on the issues that people care about, they could lose seats. And that's happening everywhere, particularly we saw winning seats off the Nationals because of coal seam gas in northern New South Wales. But here in Victoria, the most vulnerable place for labour is in inner-city seats, places like Richmond, Brunswick, Northcote, And so that's why I think that people who live in those seats in particular should be contacting their local members mobilising, going on the streets, going on the vigils that are coming up in the next few weeks because the, it's a little known trade secret that politicians don't like losing their seats and <laughs> that is the kind of message that they listen to. They You can send them the science and they might read the science but they're not going to act until they actually feel like their seat is at risk. So that's the strategy I think people should
1: take. Okay, I'll ask you at the end of the program to tell people how to get on board this exact, you've got a very step by step approach and I know you train people um, you know how to approach this sort of thing. It's not just off the cuff. Um, David look, your recent work has been um, challenging the carbon budget idea and I like the way you are, so I call you a community cl- catalyst because just as we've all got used to the idea that there's a carbon budget and okay we work within that, you start saying no that that's not going to work. So you're challenging that, the idea that we can go on burning fossil fuel at all. And you quoted Ken Caldera from Stanford University, and he said there are no such things as allowable CO two emissions. Could you speak to that, please?
2: Yes, I mean this was sort of popularised when Bill McKibben wrote an article for Rolling Stone that everybody read and he said there were three big numbers. One was two degrees, the second was the amount of coal in the ground and the third was the amount that we could burn which was only 20% of the amount Mm. that was in the ground and that has become a general meme and it's what the the Paris talks at the end of the year. This is the way it's all framed. My concern from the very beginning was, personally speaking, If you give somebody a budget, Uh, they think they they have a right to spend it. They might even overspend it uh, unless it's a credit card with a limit. So I think it's a dangerous message to say you have got a budget for fossil Mm. fuel emissions. It sounds like you have got a right. Mm. A budget is a right to spend. So it is a right to emit more. And I think that is, is, is very poor terminology. Ken Caldera says... Every emission hurts. I mean, it's like the the quit message that every cigarette does you harm. I Mm. mean, every emission, every tonne, every hundred tonnes has another effect. So I think the framing is wrong. Um, And the idea of a carbon budget is is based on a number of assumptions which simply aren't true. First of all, uh, the Copenhagen Accord said we should not go above two degrees... That is a cap. A cap means you cannot go above it. But now we talk about a target. You can shoot an arrow at the target and miss. So there's very big difference between a cap, which is an absolute limit, and a target. So now they say, I oh, will have a carbon budget with a fifty percent chance of reaching of not going above two degrees. But that, that those figures could actually go means that the, the climate change could be between one and three. You're saying, here's our budget for two degrees, but whoop, we missed the target, got to three. I mean, we cannot. We know two's devastating, we can't go for three. So the point that we've been making is you have to have a really low probability of going beyond two. And as soon as you look at the carbon budget figures, and I got this from eminent climate scientists in Australia, as soon as you have a low risk of it sitting two degrees, there's, there's simply no budget left. Mm. And then the budget doesn't take into account what are called long-term feedback. So we have climate change, but climate change can actually produce more climate change. We've talked about this before. You get melting in the Arctic, it gets destabilised. Some of the frozen carbon in the Arctic starts to melt. It... So climate change produces more climate change. Those figures aren't taken into account. And the IP, IPCC said, if you take the permafrost into account, it reduces your budget by 27%. But in all this talk about a budget, that that's not taken into account. So I think we're living in a bit of a fool's paradise.
1: Mm. Okay, well, I'll go back to Ellen. I'll come back to David because David's information is very... You know, it's dense, and I'd like him to explain a bit more about it. But thanks,
2: <laughs> thanks for the compliment. <laughs>
1: no, I don't mean you're dense. I just <laughs> mean it's...
2: I understand. It's, I've always found it rather hard
1: to follow it, but it's intensely real and true, I'm sure. Ellen, look, Australia's being que- um, questioned now by China, Brazil, France, as we go towards Paris. And today, um, ALP um, Minister Mark Butler said, um, or shadow minister, he said, Tony Abbott is dishing out billions in taxpayers' money to big polluters. He's ruined Australia's renewable energy and he's removed Australia's legal caps on carbon pollution. Can you see signs that this outside pressure from the world um, as we move towards Paris will make, will make us sort of change or will have any effect on our politicians?
0: Well, I hope so, but unfortunately, I don't think Tony Abbott really listens to anyone <laughs> alone the international community, which is pretty sad and, and why there needs to be a big effort to, to get rid of him, I think, at the next election. Um, but it's also a bit rich coming from Mark Butler and the Labor Party because it was their policy to give out billions of dollars in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry as well. Um, they're the ones who are also undermining the rent, coming lower and lower and saying they'll negotiate to accept a lower and lower target on the red and the Greens are the only ones who've been strong, saying we need to keep it at 41,000 gigawatt hours or increase it. So it's a little bit like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. They're fighting with each other, Liberal and Labor, but neither of them seem to really get the urgency that, that David is talking about, that actually we are already seeing the worst impacts of climate change hitting and Australia will be one of the places that is hit the hardest and the first. Our agriculture industry... Our tourism industry, our very way of life, will get more and more frequent cyclones and bushfires. These are terrifying prospects. And any politician worth their salt really needs to
1: deal with it now, not just bicker about who's marginally better between Liberal and Labor. That's right. That's what I was thinking, outside pressure. I mean, I remember a Green senator from South Australia, I think it's Penny Wright, Mm -hmm. Um, she spoke to us about the rainfall pattern in the southern the whole southern part of australia from western australia over to victoria just the the area where reliable rain can be expected is going further and further south it's like the goida line just going further and further yeah. south. so farmers have to adapt but there's a point which after which they can't adapt and these fiddling around with two degrees or three degrees is davis it's incompatible with life um so i'm hoping this outside pressure will shame us and that will create internal criticism that mm. will add to the shame. But, um, well, I, I definitely hope so and I hope the <clears>
0: international <throat> pressure will make our politicians think twice about what they're doing but internal pressure is really something that they do feel and, and <clears throat> that's why I say to anyone who's ca- concerned about this issue to call up their local member, even if, even if it's me or, or a group yeah. member, to call them up and say, what are you doing about this issue? And to not let up until they've actually come up with a substantial policy on the issue and and to organise with your neighbours, your friends, your community to actually put some pressure on them Mm. in seats that matter, in marginal seats where they really will listen. Mm.
1: Okay. Well, David, coming back to the other part of your paper, tipping points, unstoppable glacier melt in Antarctica, the uh, Antarctic shelf eventually crumbling Amazon forests slowing down as a carbon sink. Can you tell us what change is already locked in and what action is needed to go below the current levels?
2: This is an interesting question, and it goes to do with the fact that in the past, the scientists probably underestimated how quickly climate change would occur and what impacts would occur at, at at what point in the warming. And I would say 20 years ago, because this is a really new science. I mean, they've learnt an enormous amount, but 30 years ago we didn't know so much about a lot of these things. We hadn't dug an ice core two kilometres down the middle of the of Antarctica and found out what the climate was like a million years ago, and we do now. And there was a general feeling and there is this space between science and politics because it's the science are here and the IPC is here. And there's this world where science and politics intermix and you get these, these political processes that said, look, we don't think any of these big things are going to happen before two degrees of warming. I think that was a general proposition. In 2007, we had this incredible melting of the Arctic sea ice one summer that I wrote a thing called the big melt, which became climate code red. Um, Cause everybody was astounded and climate scientists were saying this is happening 100 years ahead of schedule so it was shocking them that things were happening at under one degree that wouldn't happen till two and since then we've had a whole lot more indications that things are happening at lower temperature rise than expected. And the most dramatic was last year, as you mentioned. Some science came out where they looked at the West Antarctic ice sheet where we have these big glaciers coming off the land and where they hit the sea you have ice shells where the ice extends Mm. over the ocean. Those things you see that look like a kilometre high, which they are. And what they discovered is the water is getting underneath those ice shells and where the ice grounds back onto land it actually um, goes back; it goes down inward. So as soon as the water gets in, it's going to lift it up and melt it off. And they did a whole lot of modelling and said, we think for the current temperature, this ice sheet is in unstoppable melt. That is, even if you just keep the climate system as it is, this, this ice sheet, one to four metres, and the ones around it, one to four metres of sea level rise will go just for the temperature we have. And that's a tipping point. A tipping point is when a system moves from one state to a different state and you don't know tipping points normally until after they've happened. It's like ill health. You don't know. You sick until you're diagnosed and then you would wish you'd behave differently and perhaps climate is a bit the same. So last year they said, this is past its tipping point and uh, Morty Mineshausen, who does a lot of this stuff on carbon budgets and at at the University of Melbourne said, this is a game changer. You know, this really changes everything because coastal communities around the world are not going to be there. Mm-hmm. And this, this was a real shock. So that's just one really concrete example of a tipping point happening not at two and a half or three degrees but under one degree. And that's why we say climate change is already dangerous for the same reason as the meteorologist saying, oh, look, we've had a cyclone system that goes category one to five. We think we've got to add in a six now. Having to add in a six... Hmm. You know, is is the same message.
1: Yeah. Well, the second part of my question is how do we you know, go beyond zero emissions. Like, well, this is the name of this program, Beyond Zero Emissions. And listeners, sorry if I, I've got carried away and haven't told you. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions Radio and we're talking to people in the community who are finding the solutions. And the one with us in the studio today is David Spratt, who's a great thinker, and Ellen Sandell on the phone, who's a member of Parliament for Melbourne with the Greens Party. So, David, you know, what are the solutions... You know, you've got this locked in. We can't do anything about what's locked in and what's unstoppable. But these sort of timid things to not increase emissions or just to keep emissions back to this level, we need to go beyond that, below that, don't we, to bring it back to a safe... We
2: we do. It's what's called negative emissions, which is not putting more up there but starting to draw it down. And we don't have to go past nature to to understand this lesson. If you look at the Amazon rainforest, (laughs) every year... 18, we put, humans put up 10 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide each year. Each year, the Amazon rainforest circulates 18 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide. That is, it draws down through photosynthesis, 18 billion tonnes, and because the forest gets old and dies and rots, and the carbon dioxide goes back up. So there's a cycle. But the the, the, the Amazon is a wonderful example of what you can do, and it's very simple, the more forest, the more d- drawdown you get. The less forest, the more problem you've got. So we know from nature mm. that this works. What we now have to say is, what sort of regulatory policy system can can we develop that actually increases drawdown? I mean, photosynthesis is one. There are, are processes with biochar, which you, this program has talked about mm. before, um, to to uh, bear it in terms of of carbon fertilizers and and, and in the ground and so on. So. Our one of the elements of our program has got to be to say what are the processes that actually draw down carbon? to because it's too high now. We know we know from from climate history three million years ago, fourteen million years ago, at the level of carbon dioxide we've got now, you're going to get in the long run three degrees of warming and, and a sea level rise in in the tens of meters. I mean that takes. Two, three, a few thousand years But it mm. will happen mm. So we have got an opportunity If each year instead of putting up 10 ton, 10 billion tonnes We drew down two or three Which scientists think is feasible for us Then we can get it back down Before a lot of its impact Which mm. takes time It's like heating an oven It takes a long time to get up to full temperature If we can pull some of the heat off Turn down the knob on the oven It won't get as hot And, and we can we can start to deal with it
1: Thank you, David. That's very clear. Now, back to you, Ellen. I know I have to let you go in nearly uh, out of time, but I want you to give some indication to the listeners about this local campaign to replace Hazelwood, which will be great for Victoria when that happens, but it's also going to be symbolic also for the rest of Australia that we need to be doing this. And you do it by kind of professional campaigning, I think. You know, I could say that I've been part of different campaigns when if you know what you're doing, you know how to do it, people will really draw in many more of their friends and relatives to get on board. So what can people do in marginal electorates if they're in a marginal electorate or if they can go there? What, what sort of guidance are the Greens going to give people? Well, it is actually incredibly
0: easy for people who've never done campaigning before or people who are seasoned professionals. The tactics are pretty simple. It's just about... Showing to our particularly our labour friends in marginal electorates that they will lose votes unless they do something on climate change, so we've got a number of number of things planned over the next few weeks before the budget in May, we're doing some vigils and actions outside MP's offices, so it just means getting together with some of your community and and going along to sit outside an MP's office and show them that you care. Um, and then we'll be doing other actions later on. So we'll be doing a trip down to the Latrobe Valley so that we can actually talk to some of the locals, hear their story, look at the impacts of Hazelwood and see it for yourself. Uh, and then later on in the year, we'll also be doing public forums and call your MP actions where you can get together with your neighbours and actually call your local MP. So the best way to find out about it is either on my website, if you go to ellensandle.com. If you sign up, put in your name and your email address, we'll send you updates. Or some of the local climate action groups are really taking the lead on this. So Climate Action Moorland, Climate Action Yarra or Climate Action Darabin, if you have a look on their website, they've, they're the ones who are taking the lead on some of these actions as well.
1: All right. I'll just ask you to say the name, Climate Action, which one is it? Moorland, Darabin? Climate
0: Action Moreland, Darabin or Yarra, depending on the area that you live in. But okay. Climate Action Moreland is really taking the lead on a lot of it. All right.
1: And could you just say the spelling of your name, Ellen? Because listeners, you, if you've got a pen now, write down her address, uh, ellensandle.com. But how do you spell Ellen Sandle?
0: It's ellensandel com. And if you just just typing your name and your email address in the sign-up box um, or sign the Clean Energy Petition on the front page, we can send you information about Hazelwood.
1: Excellent. Thank you. David?
2: I was just going to say, um, I'm part of Climate Action Moreland and we're having a meeting tonight and... Um, we've decided to basically try and visit all the MPs in in the Moorland area, whether it be Upper House or Lower House. So we have um, Fiona Patton from the sex party, the whole lot, uh, and um, have a little morning um, visual protest outside so that everybody going to work can honk, but also to give them a letter or something, just mm. outlining the sort of things we want. And the first of those is on Thursday next week. I'll give you the, the details for... Um, next Monday's program, right. um, but that, then they'll be every two weeks from then on. So that's just, that's just one local climate group that I'm aware of.
1: Okay, that's fantastic. And thank you for staying, David, and thank you, Ellen, for hanging in there for half an hour. That's a marvellous amount of time that you've given us. Um, I'd like to thank David Spratt and Ellen Sandal for inspiring us today. Uh, we're going to have one more message about Earthworker and then we'll have a break. And after that, we're going to talk to an Aboriginal elder who's fighting the same fight. It's on in the Galilee Basin area, which is his traditional land. And they're struggling against the Indian company called Adani Coal. So just before we go to that, Jane, I'd like to give a message from Earthworker. Um, Ellen mentioned this group called Earthworker Co-op. And they sent me a message today that they were very keen, happy we're doing this program. And they're hoping to bring green jobs to the Latrobe Valley by making solar hot water systems. Now, if you've still got your pen and paper there, listeners, you can call 1300-GO-EARTH. That's G-O-E-A-R-T-H. I suppose it's the numbers that go (laughs) with GO-EARTH on your phone. 1300-GO-EARTH. And you can get a quote a quiet, efficient bolt-on solar heat pump. And after rebates, I asked them the cost. He said the cost is uh, starts at about $2,180. They can also connect you to a green plumber called PJT Green Plumbing because some plumbers sort of don't like these newfangled heat pumps and they say, no, you can't have it. But the green plumbing apparently know all about it. So look up earthworkercooperative.com.au or phone 1300-GO-EARTH. I
2: was just going to say the um, information we've got now is that uh, these heat pumps, a heat pump is the same principle as an air conditioner, in terms of hot water are much more efficient than putting a traditional hot water system on your roof. Um, it's, better to use, hot- uh, it's better to use solar panels to generate electricity to run yep. one of these heat pumps than, than what we used to think of solar hot water. So yep. this is actually a more efficient, more cost-effective way. So this is, this is leading-edge ed- technology in terms of hot water systems and, and I really hope people get on board.
1: Good. And it, it like it's good for the valley as well, for this transition for workers because we don't want to leave people dangling as we make this transition to renewable energy. I also have a message from Jennifer Colbert who will speak to us next Monday. Um, she is organising a bulk buy of solar panels. Uh, she's doing this with another person from Alfington. She's in Fitzroy, and the other person's in Alfington but it could be anywhere in Melbourne, I think, and the state. A bulk buy. They've done all the research. And if you're interested in putting solar panels on your w- roof, you can go to her website, or oh, no, send her an email. This is um, info at solar and I'll spell solar neighborhoods. it's one word, solar, s o l a r n e i g h b o u r h o d s so info at solarneighbourhoods.org. That's for Solar Panel Bulk Buy. So I've done all my advertising tonight. I hope, listeners, you've enjoyed that program. It's an ongoing story. I'm sure we'll see David again. I think once you came in here at the Brisbane floods, David, and we were talking then about the teachable moment. Now let's get everyone on board. But, you know, there's a lot more teaching and learning to go on. So thank you very much, David and Ellen. And then we're going to Adrian Burrugaba from the Galilee Basin. Tonight we're going to central Queensland. Adrian Baragaba is a proud traditional owner of Wangan and Jagalingu country. You might know this area better as the Galilee Basin, but the Indian company Adani wants to build one of the biggest coal mines in the world there. So Adrian is standing up and he against this and he's inviting you to join uh, in a protest against this. So welcome, Adrian. Hello. Adrian, could you just tell us what is the legal action that Adani have taken against your people?
3: The legal action is a process that they use through the native title legislation. It's um, a process where they consult the traditional owners on the land and uh, ask them to do a land use agreement. Well, the Wunkan Jagalingu people have rejected a land use agreement and we haven't consented to the Carmichael mine. We've never had any point. Signed or, or agreed to any money, and through that that process, we then had to prove our spiritual and religious and ceremonial and ritualistic uh, connection to the land. quite under the under that act to show that there was some disturbance to our Aboriginal law and custom, and so that's how that process works. Mm. It's always it's always stacked against Aboriginal people, because it's. It's a very short process. Uh, From the 4th of October, 2014, when the the claim group first came together and voted down and rejected the land use agreement, the next day, working day, Adani went to the NATO Title Tribunal on the 10th of October and uh, applied to the NATO Title Tribunal to compulsorily acquire our land. And we had approximately three months to reply and then the government then moves to acquire the land compulsorily. That's, that's the position we're in now. Aboriginal people, as well as the Wangan and Chagalingu people, have always maintained that this is a, a discriminatory way of us proving our, our tenure to the land, mm. our land tenure rights, and so it, it, it's, always go, it's always going to fail us in our rights to stand for our uh, protection of the land.
1: Well, I read in The Guardian that they said this might be a test case for Australia's native title laws. You know, it's a kind of turning point because this is kind of a mega mine and it's obviously going to be mega destructive. You said it's going to leave just a huge, great hole in the land. I mean, it doesn't have to be any very detailed spiritual value. No one can bear the thought of that.
3: It, uh, it 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 could develop into something of a uh, a mass challenge in in courts with the native title process. It's very limiting. So they, they may have compulsorily acquired the land, but there's still a challenge because the people have still voted down the land use agreement. So the majority mm-hmm. of people who feel that their religious and spiritual connection to the land will mm-hmm. will be disrupted and displaced and destroyed forever our songs and our dreaming of the rainbow serpent and, and, and all the water that runs in and, and through that land is, uh, is basically based on all of our beliefs.
1: Would you just describe <laughs> the land to us? Because, uh, you know, it's central Queensland. A lot of people, especially in Melbourne, won't have ever been there. And
3: Yeah. Well, from around uh, Claremont area, out to the Great Dividing Range, it's, it's pretty much sort of um, flat, arid land. Mm. There's a lot, of, a lot of trees. As you get closer to where the Carmichael is, you cross the Baleando River, coming from the coast, from mm. Claremont direction, and then um, as you draw closer to the Great Divide and Range, the, the landscapes begin to change. Mm. So as you come closer to the Carmichael River, which the Carmichael River actually runs straight across the Carmichael Mine, which is the, the Adani mine mm. site, mm. and as, as you go further towards a range you come to a, a number of springs they're natural springs about 10 natural springs one of them is uh the, it's called the dungabula, dungabula springs these springs are vital to the whole area and it and it feeds the area with water continually 24 7 all year round and it's they're just like oasis in the middle of central queensland and either when i say oasis there they're also palm trees there and they the waxy cabbage palm is a a tree that grows along the Kammacha River, mm-hmm. and they can only be found there and nowhere else in the world. There are species of animals and, and plant life that can be found only there and nowhere else in the world. And this mine will damage and fracture the ecosystem beyond anything imaginable. And all of those endangered species like the black-throated finch and even the, even those trees, they will, they will be existent. Just like our law and custom and our culture, it will, it will be gone forever. It will die. So if you, if you want a, a picture of it, it's a, it's a picture of beautiful, uh, um, springs mm. and, and, like you have like, like big billabongs that mm. like, you know, are teeming with life. And yeah. to us, it's our creation. It's our beginning where the Wanga, the Jagalingu people
1: yeah. well, came yeah. from. You said in the um, article I read that it would be annihilation for you, you know, for your people.
3: I'm really, I'm really concerned about the future of the Wangan Jagalingu people. I'm concerned that our people are coming from trauma, traumatization of colonization and yeah. separation from their land. You know, it forces our people to to carry all of this uh, suffering, and it's, it's suffering that will go on into the future because when our people are dispossessed and displaced from their lands they they have all the manner of problems you know we can't refer back to our law we can't refer back you know our, our beginnings and 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 we can't teach our children about their identity and these things are very important to us it's yeah. essential to the to the to the well-being of Aboriginal people that that we can we can reconnect with their land and we can be grounded to the place of where yeah. our ancestors are so these are very important and if if, if this mine goes ahead. It will take a big chunk out of our life, yeah. and essentially will dis- destroy uh, our heritage forever.
1: All your reference points, we gone.
3: Exactly. Well, you know, Aboriginal people refer to the land in that sense, where it's unspoiled and untouched, as our place of beginning. Yes. Like people, like the Christian would refer to the Bible. They they could That's look right. back. To, you know what. Uh, you know, the the Ten Commandments and, yeah. and the laws. and We find that in the land. It's really important for us that, that we, we yeah, can't yeah. surrender that.
1: Well, that's the best expression of that I've heard from you just then because I, I, I think a lot of people in the cities are just not sensitive to it because they haven't seen the land and also they don't know enough Aboriginal people to tell it to them like that. They don't get it. Anyway, but we're not the ones stopping it. It's these um, mines yeah. and the Queensland government. There's pure politics and big money involved. So... You're at the pointy end of all this, but I think there's a global necessity for the coal to stay in the ground as well and mm. do you think that you know all these international banks have been ruling out funding recently four French banks the other day, and all these top banks have said no they won 't fund this and they won't fund the Abbott Point you know terminal there because climate change laws are going to eventually kick in and and make this a stranded asset. Could you talk a bit about that you know that bigger climate change aspect of preserving this land because you sound like the people who are standing up on the spot but there's a lot of people on the coast and in the cities who understand all this from the climate change perspective who will support you
3: well it 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 is something that we're really concerned about and we do have uh we do have a lot of supporters out there and we're very grateful for that and um people uh because we have that's been going for a while but you can find that through our website but uh in saying that we've received a lot of information from environmental groups you know the impact that this mine will have upon the water because Mm -hmm. they will use billions of liters of water and that essentially will dry dry the land up it could potentially turn it into an inland desert i mean this this is a mine that's uh projected you know to, to run for about 50 years and then they will also have a a coal fired burnt coal fired station burning the coal out there in central Queensland. This will have some effect once again upon the plant life and nature in general. Well,
1: they're um, planning a, a new coal fired power station up there.
3: This was this was not also authorised, and, and we weren't informed about it until mm. only uh, a couple of months ago. It's just yeah, ridiculous. So there
1: should be no new coal mining and no new fire-powered stations. Yeah. You know, like, it's just too late in history for this. This is, you know, the, the Antarctic's falling, you know, the Antarctic shelves falling off, yeah. the Arctic's melting. We're all going to be paying. Australia's already got a lowered rainfall because of it, more bushfires yeah. and everything. We we know about it. Like I think that the the mixture of your local loss and mm-hmm. our global loss, I think those two things have to be made joined together. I think it's a much more persuasive case to the court if you if you bring in. Well, your...
3: see, this will have an effect upon the Great Barrier Reef because the Carmichael River runs into the Ballyando River, essentially runs into the Burdekin River, then out to the Great Great Barrier. Yeah. And and uh, the runoff from that was massive, it, you know, because of the what happens to the water once it once it goes through the mines, it becomes tam- contaminated. If you, yeah. if you look inside the mines, fly over, you can see the colour of the water that's in there. It's like a, it's an awful colour. Well, that's that's like a, it's a it's a highly toxic mm. waste that they've been washing the coal with. You know, it become, it's worse than us. This then is washed down through the rivers and through the waterways, and through the aquifers. And out into the great, the Great Barrier Reef,
2: yeah.
3: and then it just it, then it poisons the whole atmosphere as oh. well, and oh, it's, the it's, environment just because it's so fragile now, yeah, it would just um, damage it beyond repair.
1: That's right. It's so fragile, and this is so massive. You know, this is, as you said, one of the biggest coal mines in the world. If it goes ahead, but let's not. Well, it's just absolutely. It can't really go ahead. Um, But I want to know what Adani is doing. You know, they have been criticised before for their tactics in India. And I'm wondering, is Adani trying to discredit you or divide your community or, you know, get their own way round the back way that way?
3: Well, you know, as we know, in any society, we'll have these, you know, differences of opinion. And it it really has... um, It really comes down to greed, um there's there's not really much incentive in this whole thing for you know the local indigenous people we we we've we've been we've been spoken to about them and it's never it's never a proper negotiation yeah. it's always just you know they just throw things at us and we don't accept it then they just say well, we're going to take your land anyway it's an insult yeah. and the, the government doesn't help the government's not not helping us they just they just put us in here like you know lambs for slaughter and then we we essentially have to just, you know, take whatever they give, or then they just go, you know, to the government. It's it's really sad because, you know, our 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 people are you know are a of people, and we're close closely related, so we're very very strong in our in our beliefs, and, mm. you know, in the land. Um, but there's 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 a there's a segment, or there's a you know there's a, there's a split.
1: Yeah, which yeah. is which
3: is only minor, but uh, we have the, the Wangan and Jagalingu traditional owners' um, family council that's made up of the the twelve ans- the twelve remain ans- all the ancestors from the land, and all of those descendants from those ancestors are the ones that um, form the tribal or, or like a um, like a family council, and this council makes decisions on the land. So. The majority of the council are saying that this mine is no good and we don't accept it, and we rejected that land use agreement back in, in uh, two, 2014. Yep. And we will, we will protect and defend the country and our connection to it for, for future generations. And it is, our, it is our duty to our ancestors, to the, the original custodians, to protect the land and it is our responsibility to our future generation mm. to be there and educate everybody as to why we are, why we are the original people and it's our it's our responsibility to the land well, to maintain it
1: well i bring you the respect of all the people who listen to this program because a lot of them will very much appreciate what you've said I think a lot of people would like to um, join the campaign. And I am wonder, are you asking people to pressure the Queensland government or the federal government? Or how can people stand up and be counted with your campaign? We saw the Get Up one yeah. uh, sign on there, but what else can people do?
3: Well, if people like to, they, they can write letters to the. Um Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, the, the, the new Labor government, right. to pressure them to, to not allow this mine to go ahead, to stop the uh, uh, um, to not allow the mining lease um, application for, for Adani for the Carmichael mine. Okay, and and, and to um, to pressure them to um, to to stop any further legal action that started by Adani to take the land, and um, if, if if people can do that, then then uh, people who put pressure on the, on the governments will then give the, the governments a, send the government a message, you know, to come and talk with the yeah. The, yeah. the indigenous people. So All right.
1: well, I'll put the details of that on our podcast and our, on our you know program page, and I might even write a little short letter that people can copy it, you know, with the address to. Um, Anastasia Paloushe. She's got a very funny spelling to her name. I need to get it right. But look, we wish you really well with it and I'm really grateful to you for talking to us today. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Keep in touch. Thank you. That was Adrian Baragaba. He's the traditional owner of the Wangan and Jagalingu country and uh, they're protesting against Adani's coal mine in the Galilee Basin. I'll put details on the uh, Beyond Zero Emissions website. (laughs) Thank you very much to Adrian Baragaba. Now, I've got an update to that story, listeners. The State Bank of India today has reneged on its $1 billion finance deal with Adani's Galilee Basin coal mine. So that is good news. This is the 12th global investment bank to walk away. And I have a quote from Blair Pelisi from 350.org, and she says, the fact that Adani can no longer even rely on its historically cosy relationship with the State Bank of India is a true testament to just how toxic this proposal is, not only to the environment but to the bottom line as well. And Adani needs to raise a staggering $16.5 billion to move forward and she hopes that Australian banks will follow this lead. So we'll watch that space. But thanks very much to Adrian. Thanks also to Jane for helping... um, on the panel not helping she's the main part of this whole program together and to David Spratt and to Ellen Sandal who participated also behind the scenes there's the radio team who do the podcast and the beautiful promos that we do Jane
0: just finishing uh, following on from those interviews with Ellen Sandel and David Spratt there's a bit of uh, community effort that you can put in if you want to go to ellensandal.com uh, as Ellen mentioned there's a series of campaigns and vigils coming up also, Climate Action Moreland, if you if you search for that, Climate Action Morland, Climate Action Darabin or Climate Action Yarra, that'll also get you onto some websites where you can participate. And as Ellen and I think David were alluding to, that politicians live on fear. So get on the phone and get on the email and let your local MPs know what you think and want from um, the regulatory environment.
1: And the, and the thing we want is close down Hazelwood, but replace it with Lots of diverse jobs for the workers down there in the future generation. Also, next week, just a heads up, and and you can look this up beforehand, we're going to speak to Jennifer Colbert, and she's part of this um, grassroots group that have got bulk buying of solar panels. And if you want to find out about that, what they cost, um, if your roof is suitable and all of that, you can send an email to info at org. So Jennifer sent me that message today because we weren't un- were not unable to do her interview today, but we'll do it next Monday. Um, Jane, we're nearly finished time, so thank you very much to everybody for listening. Please listen to our radio program on Friday morning at 8.30 and next Monday for more climate action. We really appreciate that you listen and hope you take some of the action. And stay tuned to Save Albert Park.